The Mix Room with Genelec. Today we're welcoming Rack Studios General Manager Andy Lease, Studio Manager Emma Townsend, plus Chief Engineer Robbie Nelson onto the podcast to talk about Rack Studios' history since being founded in 1976, right up to the present day where Studio 4 was very recently transformed into an immersive mixing room. So we can't wait to hear all about that. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, welcome along, everyone. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, really well, thank you. Really good, thanks. Excellent. Yeah, great, thanks. Excellent. And where are you all? Obviously, for the people that are listening to this, Andy and Emma are together at the moment on this Zoom, and Robbie is somewhere else. Yep, yeah, I'm in my studio. Are you guys and at uh, Rack Studios? No, that would Rack make studios. sense. Yes. <laughs> Very <laughs> apt. Um, so I guess let's just start with the history. So Rack Studios, founded in 1976 by Mickey Most, so known for hits with... Susie Quattro, Kim Wilde, The Animals, many, many more. So Andy and Emma, I'd like to start with you, if that's all right. Um, you know, what are each of your roots into the industry that led you both to Rack Studios? Um, um, so I actually started at another studio about 10 or 11 years ago as a receptionist and then moved up to Studio Booker and then Studio Manager and then moved on to another and then ended up at Rack um, a little over a year ago. Fantastic. Okay, I've got a much longer path, but I'll keep it short. I know, it's okay. You don't need to keep it short as long as you want. I know, because I'm very old. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I started in uh, 1988 at a small publishing company called SPK Songs, which was based in Rathbone Place in the West End. Um, And I started in the A&R department as a tape copier back when the industry used to have formats other than streaming when we had room, a room full of cassette machines and taped reel-to-reels and DAT machines and mm-hmm. pneumatic tapes. And I was just basically there to copy all the music for the A&R department for various things, for promotion, for for, um, for catalogue stuff. So sitting there getting to know a lot of the catalogue and being in and around the A&R department, I, tra- I sort of went from there to being a scout um basically going out every night and seeing loads of bands. This is all pre-streaming and pre-mobile phones, so you actually physically had to run around town and run around the country trying to find bands and artists. Um, And then EMI bought SBK and made the transition to EMI, which was in Denmark Street um, and was promoted to um, senior A&R. And just kind of went from there into publishing and then had an opportunity to go to records, went to a record company called Mother Records, was there for four years, which was owned by Polygram. We were over at Sussex Place in Hammersmith, along with Polydor Records. I was there for about four years and then went back into publishing courtesy of BMG, mm-hmm. which was in Parsons Green, not Parsons Green, um, Putney. Putney um, Was there as a consultant for about three years um, and then left. And then by pure chance, just got a phone call out the blue from from Natalie, who is the daughter of Mickey, mm-hmm. who was looking for someone to help her rejuvenate the publishing side of the company, which was Rack Publishing. So that's when I arrived in 2004. Um, I came here and it was a kind of year, I think a year or so after Mickey had just passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very different place than it is now. <laughs> um, very quiet, very quiet offices. The studios were very quiet. And I think people were still using the studio, but I think, you know, it kind of, I think it sort of Mickey's passing kind of knocked, knocked the wind out of people a bit, obviously, as you can imagine. So, um, 
yeah, just being here and then just helping Natalie kind of like pull the publishing side together. But very soon after, I just thought really it got to the point where I, it became very clear we needed to kind of consolidate everything, the studios and the publishing company and kind of create what Rack was, which was a brand again. Mm. So in 2011, I got promoted to general manager um, and that became the mission, really. Excuse us, so you can hear some drilling. There are people working on the roof. <laughs> it's all um, good. I'm liking the ambience. Can you hear that? I can hear it, actually, yeah. Yeah, I can. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so it was like a, a period of like 10, the last 10 years, really. I think it's just been, you know, the process has been bringing Rack together as a really strong brand again, you know, and the studio's working in, in unison with publishing company if and when needed mm. um, and the offices upstairs i think now are full of other companies and that makes a really big difference in terms of footfall and the sort of skill sets we have in the building yeah um, and i just over a year ago emma joined us and that's when we started working together okay i see and um robbie how long have you been at rack then i started about the same time as andy 2004 I think so. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's 18 years now, isn't it? Um, Has it flown by, Robbie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tried to um, avoid saying that, Robbie. I tried to avoid saying <laughs> 18 years. <laughs> Wait till it gets to 20. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it has flown by. Um, I mean, I'm not there a great deal. I'm sort of freelance, but I'm sort of always popping in and out. Um, and now we've got the um the atmos room there the new room then hopefully i'll be there a bit more base myself out of there but yeah of course the amount of atmos um tracks that are going on these days as i'm sure you very well know all of you i can imagine you'll be in demand a lot more than with this new room Touchwood. <laughs> <laughs> and so robbie i've seen so you've worked with the rolling stones um labyrinth sam smith many many more um so what was your route into the industry how did you find yourself working in the studio one day um i started off um just doing a couple of courses a couple of short courses and imw and then a place called alchemia which um gave me a really good start and from there ended up as a runner um at um, wessex studios who which was run by mike hedges at the time producer um, with his amazing EMI TG desk that was used for Dark Side of the Moon. So we had that there for a while. And Wessex was obviously where Nevermind Bollocks um, and London Calling was done and Spirit mm. of Eden. So that was, that was a pretty um, amazing place to get a start. And so there, I was there for maybe two, three years, three or four years. And then before it closed and got turned into flats, like most places back in, the early 2000s and then yes um ended up um uh rack um just stumbled in <laughs> literally maybe <laughs> pretty much <laughs> yeah he kind of came in we're like who are you and you went, yeah. <laughs> i'm your new engineer who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I will be working here from now on yeah Excellent. you can't get rid of me well with those credentials i can um i can see why so robbie was there someone that um, inspired you to want to work in a studio one day? Did you learn from someone? Did Where did you first get the idea in your head that you wanted to do this? It's a few different things. I mean, initially, I didn't really realise that I did want to do it. I was in bands, but my 
in a secondary school, our music teacher, they um, set up a small studio in the in our comprehensive in just one of the rooms and he encouraged us to go and just use it during lunches and after school. And um, so, yeah, but it wasn't until a few years afterwards that I realised that that had sort of set some me on some sort of path and I ended up, um, yeah, taking the path I, take, path I did. I see. It was just sort of accidental. Happy accident, though. Yes. Including the stumbling into rack. I mean, it all works out yeah. in the end, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Andy and Emma, did you also both want to work in the music industry in some way? Or is this something that, you know, happened not by chance, but by given a certain opportunity? What was that like for you? Um, yeah, I, I very much wanted to work in the music industry, um, although my musical talents are sadly very lacking. Um, I'm definitely much better at the sort of organizational side of things so I that's kind of where I was trying to find my place um, in it and I did kind of stumble into the sort of studio world Um, uh, a friend of a friend was working at Strongroom and uh, sort of through them I ended up getting an interview and getting the receptionist job and then I'd been doing management and bookings in other industries before and so when the studio booker job came up about two months later I kind of quickly put my hand up for it and took that on on um, and then when the studio manager left a couple of years later uh, I was offered that as well so I just kind of very quickly moved up and then um, yeah that that's kind of how I felt and it, it it just it felt quite right <laughs> no that's great that's great and what about you Andy um I was kind of like I was almost I was very into music very early on I was sort of playing a bit as well and I was helping local band a local band that was from my hometown get a few gigs so I wasn't managing them but I was you know helping them play shows and stuff I moved to Holland when I was 17 um and was playing in bands in Holland because being an English musician in Holland was very like having a, a very credible passport <laughs> into music. Um, so I met a lot of musicians in Holland um, and then moved back and then eventually moved to London and then was doing more music. And then a friend of mine was uh, built, was persuaded. My first job at, in uh, SPK, studio, uh, SPK songs in Rathbone Place, my friend who was working there persuaded them to build a studio, a demo studio, which would be in the basement. So I kind of de- uh, deputised for him for about two months while the studio was being built. And that was my first taste of the industry. I hadn't really sort of thought about how to get into the industry. It was just an opportunity that just presented itself. And then when the studio was finally finished, I sort of basically inherited his job and that was my first break. Um, but it wasn't like consciously trying to get into the music industry. I just, I guess it was just a really great opportunity that just fell on my lap. But being ready for it and being a lover of music, I think, obviously helps. Oh, yeah, of so, course. Yeah. And um, I was, you were saying about Mickey. So you said it was, um, well, very quiet, understandably, and a bit of a sad place when you finally got to Rack. He was clearly very well respected. So um, yeah. was there anything you were keen to, I suppose, uphold in terms of um, any traditions that had been gone on there or set by him in your roles? That's quite an expansive question. I can um, imagine, yes. <laughs> I think that that's, that's followed that mantra, that idea of what he, cause, because we've always said when we talk to this about it to anyone, the place was so beautifully set up 
in the first place, the equipment that was chosen, um, the building, the location. I mean, it was all amazing. Um, and all it really needed was sort of polishing up um, and, you know, fresh organisation and fresh eyes and ears and and just fresh attitudes a little bit. Just, to, you know, it it was, it took, it was, it was still being used by people, but I just don't think perhaps with the greatest respect to everyone who was here at the time, it was being utilised as much as it could have been. And it just maybe needed just sort of like a bit of a bit of a push. Um, and I think also well, another major factor that helped that evolution was a company called AWOL, who kind of grew up inside the offices of Rack. They were originally called Artists Without a Label, and that was a, digi- a digital um, aggregator. For, for for apple and that started with two producers who were based downstairs it was a sort of hobby thing they were doing but it grew into like a team of about 15 people mm-hmm. and they occupied the offices upstairs and because they were dealing with like metrics and uh, um, sales tracking and all the things that we take for granted in terms of digital sales um, it helped us look to them and see where the music industry was heading because obviously that was still in the era of myspace um and the iphone hadn't been released at that point so in fact when was the iphone released 2005 to maybe later 2006 i think it was something like that wasn't it yeah so it's just just before that point so the whole digital thing was just starting to take off and we were just lucky enough to ha- again just to have people in the building that were kind of getting on board that whole thing and awol was eventually sold to cobalt and became their labor services division um, and because of what we'd had and all the different people we had in the building at that point, because of AWOL, we replaced them with, we hired the space to other smaller companies. So we currently have like two management companies, um, another independent publishing company, an Australasian rights society and a PR company. And they bring their own kind of flavor of things into the building. And they also bring other people in and footfall. Um, and together with what we have going on downstairs, it just became a kind of roller coaster of, of, of things that were occurring mm. um, and just became something that was, yeah, really vibrant, basically. Um, and that took, I think that's sort of been, that's been happening over the last sort of 10 years here. Yeah, and I mean, anyone looking at your website or that knows about it, obviously you know this, but for any listeners, um, artists like David Bowie, Al Green, Michael Jackson, Pink Floyd, Adele, Arctic Monkey, Shakira, they've all recorded there. So what is it about the studio, do you think, um, as there are so many as well, particularly in the UK and in London, that makes it appeal to these kind of, these huge artists time and time again? Well, I think we've probably, we've probably got three answers to that. Should we all give you an answer? I think you should, yes. Robbie? I mean, for me, from my it's it doesn't feel like any other big studio complex a lot of them can feel very corporate and um sometimes very office like and it you feel very pressured as an artist i think when you walk into places like that because it's and it's not very vibey whereas racks kind of the antithesis of that um as soon as you walk in any of the studios it it just feels like home it's 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 not pristine. The equipment's old. You get that you you don't feel, I think, afraid of touching anything or breaking stuff. Mm-hmm. So which immediately puts people at ease. Um, mm-hmm. And then along with that, it's got the most amazing equipment from the seventies and then more modern stuff now. With we were lucky that Mickey during the sort of 
late 80s, 90s, when a lot of people were ditching all the classical equipment that they'd bought in the 70s and 60s. Mickey refused to do that and refused to spend money updating it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, all about being well, tight. <laughs> yeah. So, well, when when we got there, it was sort of, I think it had, as Andy said, gone through a bit of a lull, and it was it was maybe a little bit run down. But at the same time as that, the equipment, the fact that all that equipment was there and could be brought back to life properly, and um, by the amazing tech Kev that we've got. Yeah. Um, and it just gave, gives an amazing base so going forward. Yeah, we did, they didn't get rid of any of that equipment, which has since become classics and gives yeah. the studio a lot of the sound. Mm. I mean, you can pretty much walk in there, any engineer walk in there, and you'll get an amazing sound out of those rooms. And you, it's, it's a lot harder to fuck it up than it is to get it right in any studio. Right? <laughs> Alice, you said a swear word. That's okay. That's okay. You've got one. That's like you're all on the telly. That's one for you, Robbie. Um, <laughs> what about you, Emma? What's your answer to that? What do you think makes it special and makes these kind of level of artists want to come here? Um, I think the so the sort of like rack attitude and ethos has always been to just make make it as easy and friendly and comfortable as possible for everyone who walks through the door um so you know when it comes to like the you know the beginning of the bookings process to like walking into the building to everyone that we employ um everyone is just really like genuinely friendly and trying to be helpful and i feel like that transpires so much and then also the fact that our live rooms all sound just absolutely lovely and as robbie says all of our vintage equipment it all works um and so it's so easy to just come in and like you know it's not like oh you have to put the drum kit there because that's the only place it sounds good it's like Mm -hmm. you know for the most part put it anywhere and you know so I think the fact that it's just it's then so easy once you're in the studio just to set up and like start recording um I think that all inspires creativity mm-hmm. and makes people come back again and again we get a lot a lot of repeat customers we have a lot of people who just keep coming back and you know we've got three tracking rooms and I, I feel like they all have different client bases that you know we've got certain people who just love this you know one you know studio one and some people who love studio two yeah. and so um I think that has so like you know in the last few years we've been actually really busy and since I've been here um, the studio Tetris has been quite challenging in a good way, as in the problem is trying to fit everybody in rather than <laughs> rather than there being lots of spaces. So I think I think that all adds to to sort of rack being just such a lovely place to work. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds like a, a special place and. I'm getting good vibes about it from what I've heard so far. So um, I'm curious, Andy, what have you got to add to that? What is it about Rack that I think, you think that, appeals? I think they've both pretty much said that's all. They're all the main reasons. I think. Um, I suppose just to add into that, what I see, we've just done a couple of tours recently. We don't normally have tours of the studio, but we just happen to have had a couple recently. One from um, Westfield Academy and one from Belmont University in Tennessee, and. So we're a bunch of 16-year-olds and a bunch of late teen, early 20-year-olds. And seeing kind of their reaction to being shown around the building, we threw up some 
two-inch tape and played them stuff off the desk and we took them to the Atmos room and we walked them around a bit in Studio 3. Studio 2 was busy at the time with a client, but just seeing their reaction to the building and then knowing what the history of the place has been and seeing the discs on the walls and knowing who's recorded in there and stuff, it has an effect on young people. You know, It's great to see that next generation being shown around a place that's been knocking around for 45 years now. Mm, I think that's an incredible thing to do. You may you don't know who you might inspire to be the next engineer, do you? Um, I wish I'd done something fun like that. We didn't do any cool school trips I can remember, but I would have loved to have gone to a recording studio. What was also noticeable is that there was an even 50-50 split with male and female in both groups, in both part in both groups of people. Mm. So nice, I, yeah, really encouraging. encouraging. Um and we have that similar balance in the in the in the building here amongst the managers and amongst uh, engineers and and assistants so you know I think that's another thing that makes a really big difference that to the atmosphere I think it's very it's a very different feeling when you walk into a room full of blokes if you walk into a room full of women or you walk into a room full of just a very even mixture of people Mm. it puts you on a even playing field I suppose you don't feel on the back foot and it's sort of there for everyone you know we had a band in recently called Archive and I think the stones were kind of down the corridor and they were buzzing on the fact that they saw them, there's the stones, you know, and, and, and there's no sort of barriers or security codes or passes. We went into, we went to visit a label today and it's like, they were still getting used to the building because they'd only been in there for a month, but you had a security card and it felt like you had to sort of, you know, you were in a sort of laboratory or something. Whereas like Robbie said, it's very relaxed feeling at rack and, um, you know, you can just bump into someone in the kitchen. Like, you know, I, I was in having a sandwich a few years ago and Paul McCartney came and sat next to me. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's that. I you forget can how to chew, like, I think. I, I did actually stop chewing, yeah. Um, anyway, but you, but it's like that. You can just literally bump into really like, you, you know, unknown artists or or whatever can bump into very well-known people and vice versa. And it doesn't really, normally bats an eyelid. Mm, that's fantastic. Just, that's what we're all here to do. Everyone's here for a reason. Yes, that's what you want. And um, I was going to ask as well, obviously over recent years in particular, sadly a lot of studios have fallen by the wayside a little bit. So how have you managed to be successful and stay sought after and stay afloat, especially during COVID and all of that as well? I'll, I'll just take the first part of this and, and Emma can take the second part. I mean, the first part for, for the COVID thing, we were lucky in the sense that the scale of the building allowed us to, well, we shut down, I think, in... April of that of 2020 mm-hmm. and we we're closed for about two months but very very quickly opened back up again because the building the physicality of the building allowed us to create bubbles within inside each studio so each mm-hmm. studio had its own we could split everyone away and create bubble bubbles um and that allowed us to kind of very quietly and slowly open up again um and by sort of mid part of 2020 if you looked at the calendar you wouldn't think that there was a pandemic People, all the studios were back and working. That's great. Uh, and we're just very careful. We spoke every week. We had colour coding for everything. It was all very sort of like a military-style operation, but people were so desperate to get back to work. Um, and and we, we we facilitated that by just making very having a very kind of strict routine about how we were going to do it. Mm. Brilliant. What was the second part of the question? Second part of the question escapes me now, but um, <laughs> I'm sure it was very well thought out. Um, yeah, just how have you managed to, you know, a lot of studios have closed, I was well, going to yeah, say, not necessarily yeah. over COVID, but obviously some yeah. of them did, unfortunately. How, what makes, I suppose, what makes you stand out? How, how have you managed to, um, you know, do this longevity? 
I think I think Rack have always managed to maintain um like quite being quite busy in recent years um due to a multitude of factors like having great quality vintage equipment fantastic staff um an informal but professional vibe and um you know we've got a great location and we've always been very competitively priced so um I think the fact that we just managed to keep being busy and um like just turning over album recordings and you know we still get quite a lot of long bookings you know like multiple week bookings which is something that in other studios I've noticed has died away a little bit it's not quite as prevalent as it is over here so I think those are the reasons I think those are the reasons that we've managed to thrive yeah through an era that has and you know and we're used for all sorts of other things. We've had filming stuff done here, like we were used as a part of a film called A Christmas Number One. They were Sky Cinema were shooting here for about three months, two months. And we were basically a location for that film. They shot about seven or eight scenes in the film. So because of the building and its historical feel and look, we can also double up as a as a location now. And obviously with some of the rooms as well, they're big enough to facilitate, you know, video shoots and podcasts and even live performances so you know we'll take on all sorts of different things not just recording but we'll do location stuff and you know events and filming and writing camps writing camps that's another one we've got a couple of right we got a writing camp coming later in the month um so yeah i think you if you just you just try to be as varied and try to just take on as much variety as you can and just use the building to its max um don't be snobby about stuff. <laughs> no, I move with like Reverbing Studio Four. Yeah, yeah, we That's need right. to talk about Studio Four as well, of course. So I know recently, uh, you can tell me how recently, and this might be one more from Robbie. So it now has a scalable nine point one point four monitoring solution based around Genlex, the one. So um, I suppose why did you why did you pick the ones? What was it about them that you know was the right choice for the immersive work you're doing there? Um, well, to be fair, we listened to we listened to pretty much everything on the market, and Rack were um, very good in the fact that they let the actual engineers um, who are going to be working in there actually choose what's what's going in there, which um, a lot of the time doesn't happen when people build studios. But <laughs> 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 the, the people in there aren't the actual ones to actually get much of a say on how it's built, and which is. I think where a lot of studios go wrong and how Studio 4's come out so well, um, a big part of that is because the, the whole technical team had a big input on how how it was going to work, what the workflow was going to be, and, yeah, just everything about it, really. Um, and then sort of Genlex, yeah, we went round, we listened to a lot of different manufacturers and... We stumbled, well, we didn't stumble. We went to Genlec's listening room and we we all were just blown away. Um, they, they're very even sounding. They go they go right down to the lows. You, can, you can't really feel the crossover. Um, and we know they're a, they're a speaker, Genlec's are a speaker that a lot of engineers use and a lot of engineers love. So we know that people coming in from outside especially in atmos rooms they've because the genlex are so scalable the smaller ones sound very similar to the big ones that we've got but they can start mixes in their own room 
and then bring them to rack to finish off and it will sound um, pretty much as they they expect it to. Mm. Fantastic and what have you mixed recently in Atmos Robbie? Uh, in Atmos I've just been doing a um, I did a short film um, which was um, initially just going to be in stereo um, and then that very quickly ended up being in Atmos because the room was there and it was kind of working. Um, so that was cool. Um, just done a new band called Dubinsky and I'm about to start some um, a few um, tracks of um, a girl called Rumour, um, a couple of her sort of um, back catalogue. We're, we're going to go back and do some Baccarat stuff that she um, she had a Baccarat album a few years ago. So we're going to um, redo that orchestral album in in Atmos. Lovely. Fantastic. And I'm guessing between the three of you, you've all seen a big uptake in Atmos work in the last year, couple of years, I suppose. And that's where, well, why you need the immersive studio, of course. But has it been a significant amount of the work you're getting now? What's the sort of split between that and stereo mixes, would you say? Well, I mean, the, the room has pretty much only just launched. Um, we've maybe had a few weeks of booking it so we don't have a huge amount in that room I see as yet um but we've we've actually designed it as a hybrid room so it is a writing room as well as an atmos room and obviously can be used as a stereo mix room as well so the 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 plan is that it will be very multifunctional brilliant and what about um what are your plans for the studio for the future? Maybe near future or just for one day? Have you got um, any any other plans for it or anything you'd like to add? Um, I think it's just kind of more of the same, really. I mean, obviously, the room, like Emma said, is still evolving. It's only just launched. So, you know, we want to see where we fit in in the marketplace in certain respects. But what we're going to be doing, we're talking to labels at the moment. We did a series of masterclasses before the pandemic hit, which were aimed at the industry, a kind of demonstration of how the whole recording process works during the course of a day with a live band. Had sort of 15 people per day across people from all across the industry. And we're doing another one in October. Um, but this is very much more aimed at the kind of like people in labels who are going to be working in Atmos. And the, from talking to people in labels, it's still this this jury's out for a lot of people still on Atmos. You know, there's some people that love it, some people that don't understand it, some people like really don't really care. Um, and it's sort of something obviously that's being pushed by companies like Apple and Amazon. Um, and I'm a fan of it myself. Um, when I, you know, when you hear when I hear the right when when you hear good things in Atmos, it's amazing. You know, when you hear like something like you know, June by Zimmer or um or a Lizzo track, and there's a Miles Davis track that's been reamped and, and and mixed in Atmos. When you hear certain things, they sound fantastic, but not everyone's on board yet. Um, and that's across the board. That's not just in the industry, but also I think in the general public. I don't think they're quite on board yet. To say that, because um, we're coming from the back of the pitch, so to speak, in terms of there's lots of other Atmos rooms around, mm. but sometimes you can see the pitch in front of you from the back of the field um, and know where you best where you can best go and obviously we're starting from ground upwards not just with the room but with our with our team as well so i think we're going to find a our own niche that's the that's the idea we'll find our own place in the in the big field of atmos really um i, I think we're yeah we kind of uniquely sort of situated in the fact we've got these big 
recording rooms where we do do occasional sort of showcases, gigs type things and performances where we could, I know the technology is already coming in where you can actually mix Atmos live and listen to it live. Um, so we could, in theory, in the future, record in Studio One and be streaming it straight to the Atmos room and mix it live and for it to go out live and do different things like that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, overall, I think, like you said earlier, as people still don't know, really know what it is and know how to deal with it. I think it's like going from mono to stereo. It took five years, probably at <laughs> least, to, for people to understand it and know how to mix it and how to listen to it. And I think it's going to be the same. It'll take five to ten years if it persists to get bed in and people to know what it is. Yeah. I also think that it's it's going to be like like there's a record like Scream of Delica that came along in the 90s that kind of like changed people's perceptions of dance music. Yeah. And I think that someone's going to make an Atmos record from start mm-hmm. to finish rather than it being kind of retrofitted, so to speak. But someone's going to make an Atmos record uh, and it's just going to blow people's minds. You know, it's, it's going to be really inspiring for people. Um, and it usually, you know, technology, you know, is reliant. Music technology does rely on music being good. <laughs> it does, um, yes. If you've got good music, then people are going to enjoy it. Then people are going to be inspired by it. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of soundtrack stuff, and I'm, you know, obviously what some of some of the stuff that Zimmer's done is is phenomenal. I think. Um, oh yeah. In the Atmos world. Do you have a go-to track? Um, any of you that you demo to people to try and show them what it can do? I've heard Rocket Man a few times, and that was pretty no, incredible. No, don't. We don't. <laughs> we've, heard, we've heard we've heard Rocket Man enough. I'm sure you have, but I'm, yeah, I haven't been subjected to it as, as many times. I'm sure you have. I think we're finding stuff all the time. I mean, Emma, you were talking about that Black Keys track. Yeah, the new Black Black Keys. Is it is it the whole album? I only listened to one song. I think, but, um, I'm not sure. That, yeah, that sounds like they've recorded it with Atmos in mind. Mm. And um, yeah, so far we've kind of been like, oh, it sounds really good for pop, but it's a little bit touch and go for bands. But that sounded great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for me, it was that. It was Mar- Art Blakey, um, much, uh, um, um, Miles Davis featuring Art Blakey. That was a track where they they did a reamp thing. And it just sounds fantastic, you know, just the quality and the clarity and the the, the, the sheer width of the track sounds amazing. Mm. And it's, I suppose it's not just stand-up music that perhaps you like that sounds good. So I heard, and this track, I don't hate it or anything, but it just does nothing for me. It's Senorita by, um, you probably heard this a lot as well, Camila Cabello and Sean Mendes. And I kind of nothing it, you know, nothing wrong with it. But when I heard it in Atmos, it, it really did sound incredible. I was hearing stuff I'd never heard, of course. I know everyone yeah. says that, but... Like instruments yeah. were sort of plucking out of the air around me. I, I, it really did transform the track. So it's just incredible to see, or to hear, should I say, what it can do to transform a song. Absolutely. At the same time, you can hear stuff where you just think, oh my God, that's, I never want to hear that, that again. You know? <laughs> I can imagine there's another yeah. side to it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild west for mixing because nobody does know what they're doing with it. So it's you hear lots of unexpectedly good stuff and, lots of stuff that you'd think would be good and is terrible in it yeah. so it's because it exposes everything it exposes yeah. all the little flaws in recording so but yeah there's there's some very good stuff for for billy eilish albums amazing i've taken time doing that the yeah. lizzo new couple of lizzo tracks they're oh, brilliant incredible absolutely incredible have you mixed those ones um yourself robbie unfortunately not (laughs) sorry if i missed that i thought i would have brought that up by now if you had (laughs) yeah and there's 
And in those mixes, especially that Lizzo track, when you isolate what's actually going on in the speakers, in the array of speakers, there's not much going on behind you or above you. Yeah. It's just enough just to take the, the ear back um, and give you the sense of width. And that's, I think, you know, that's when it can be at its most effective. It's, there's not a great deal going on in terms of bells and whistles, but it's just, it makes the whole thing just like twice as wide. And Beauty is in the subtlety. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think, definitely. Um, that's when it's at its most effective, I think. And then until you get to things like film soundtracks where you just got like there's this ridiculous sub bass or something that you're literally in a room that's shaking. Um, <laughs> and that's quite enjoyable as well because it's like IMAX kind of quality. Um, so, yeah, um, I think it's just something that's going to, you know, when it's done well, it's just going to draw the listener in. And, yeah, I think it's like there's no going back once you start <laughs> But hearing stuff that you enjoy, it's difficult to list the stereo afterwards sometimes. Yeah, I think you're right. And I was I was actually quite surprised. I know obviously um Beyonce's Renaissance came out last week. It's everyone's listening to it. I actually was surprised. I didn't know if maybe there would be a Dolby Atmos mix of that because I saw Dolby were tweeting about it and they were just joking around saying we're gonna name today Dolby and we're gonna change our name to that on the day. But I was yeah. surprised because, you know, with her links to Tidal and everything and, you know, having pristine yeah. sound and pushing the boundaries that it wasn't available. So I was wondering I what your thoughts would be on um, you know, how common you think it might be for albums to be mixed in Atmos in future, maybe the near future or maybe five years or so, like you said. Um it's probably coming, isn't it? They're probably dropping stereo album before oh yeah. yeah oh really yeah do you know something i mean, I, don't? I, think, <laughs> I mean we 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 literally had a meeting i think mentioned earlier with a label today and, and it, it sort of confirmed what you, we sort of knew it's like you know the labels are getting incentivized by companies like apple and amazon to make atmos tracks but you know there's some artists that are very kind of let's say fair about it you know um and not really bothered and then some that are getting into it um and I think that just it's just like anything, you know, um, it's going to be a format that I suppose different to, to in a different way to mono versus stereo. This is something that until the kind of hardware's there that you can have at home that you can really appreciate it, and it becomes sort of second nature. I mean, there's some there's some speakers out there obviously that can do that. You can have a, a reasonable domestic setup from anything from like four hundred pounds to like three grand. Um, if you're prepared to spend that sort of money, you can have a version of Atmos in your house. Mm. Um, and until that becomes starts to become more commonplace, and obviously headphones as well. Um, I think that's you know the, everything has to move forward together. People have to create and make music in Atmos, and you have to be able to consume Atmos at home. Yeah, I think that's definitely key because it's all good creating it, but how do how does the average <laughs> no, person listen it. to it? I mean, yeah, that's that's the big question, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's good to hear that you're the studio, so Studio 4, isn't it, um, that's booked out, even though you've not, you know, upgraded it until very recently. So I think that's quite promising uh, on its own, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just in terms of, like, the, yeah, the desire for immersive and stuff. So that's fantastic. I think uh, it can only be, you know, good things coming in, in that regard. So um, is there anything else uh, you'd like to tell me about, the, you know, the future of the studio or anything exciting you might have? Um, coming up this year or in well I guess maybe you plan more ahead of that in uh, years to come um just sort of heads down and what, what we're busy with right now I mean there's stuff that come you know surprising stuff comes up all the time you know you never know where the next booking is going to come from 
um, in a good way sometimes. And yeah, we're just going to keep pushing forward with, I think, as Roy said, where, where we can be kind of like almost a one-stop shop and come and record and, and mix an atmosphere. That's going to be one side of it. But also we're going to carry on doing all the other things we do, you know, and straightforward, normal, <laughs> normal sessions yeah. as well as events and so forth. You know, it's just a, it's a privilege to work here basically. Oh, fantastic. Well, it certainly sounds like it is. Um, a great vibe and a great place to work, not uh, stuffy and formal at all by the sounds of it. So that's um, really key, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Great. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, uh, the three of you. Uh, we've had a few false starts with finding a time that works <laughs> or the technology that works, but we made it. We're here today. So um, I very much appreciate that. Um, and thank you so much for joining today. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.